Welcome to Climate Plus, a DevX podcast. I'm Michael Igo, senior reporter at DevX. Every year, usually around this time, the world turns its attention to climate change and what we're doing or not doing about it. At the UN Climate Conference, or COP, negotiators get deep into the weeds on every aspect of the climate crisis. This year, it's happening in Dubai. To help make sense of this complex, critical moment, we're bringing you conversations with leading climate thinkers, activists, and experts, and asking them, can COP28 deliver? If we ask the question, are institutions fit for purpose? I would say yes and no. I would say that the devil is in the detail. So it's not that money is not available, it's what type of money and at what cost. The climate story is, in many ways, a story about transformation of energy systems, of the global economy, of our lives, and of the very institutions that are responsible for delivering the financial and technical resources to make all of that happen. Institutions like the World Bank and International Monetary Fund, regional development banks, and multilateral organizations that set the rules for international cooperation. To deliver climate action on the scale that the crisis demands, these institutions will have to transform the way they work. And it's hard to transform if you don't have a plan. Enter the Bridgetown Initiative, an ambitious set of proposals to overhaul the development finance architecture for an era of climate emergency. It's been spearheaded by Barbados Prime Minister Mia Motley, who has emerged as one of the most forceful voices for doing more to support climate-vulnerable countries like her own. But it's hardly a one-woman show. Pepakaye Bardui, herself a Caribbean climate champion from Dominica, directs the Bridgetown Initiative Unit of the Barbados government. She spoke with DevEx Editor-in-Chief Raj Kumar about what it will take to reimagine development finance institutions as critical pieces of the climate change puzzle. Here's their conversation. Hey, Pep, great to get to talk with you. Um, You know, the Bridgetown Initiative, everybody is very clued in to what you all are doing in in little Barbados. I know you're in DC today, but wow, has Prime Minister Mia Motley put Barbados on the map in a big way. I actually told her that last week when we were on stage together at the Paris Peace Forum. And she said, well, don't forget about Rihanna. Uh, (laughs) Barbados has multiple major exports, but especially as we think of COP28, uh, what the prime minister is doing, what you're doing at the Bridgetown Initiative is just so front and center to the big global debate around how we go forward in this climate emergency. So I'm just so thrilled to get a few minutes to talk with you today. No, it's great to be here, Raj. And I will say that small countries do have a habit of punching above their weight, so don't underestimate. Definitely not. And we will certainly talk today about small island developing states and kind of where they fit in. Uh, Maybe we could just just kind of level set for people. What is the Bridgetown agenda? What's it all about? Look, um, Bridgetown emerged, uh, I would say, 
before the end of the COVID crisis um, as a rallying call, a rallying cry um, for attention to be paid to a number of issues that many countries had been facing, um, debt sustainability, liquidity, and of course, the climate crisis, which compounds what people had been going through, many countries had been going through for the better part of two and a half years. Um, we're, we're all just emerging from COVID. I think at um, its uh, inception, Bridgetown sought to shine a light um, on issues that maybe had not really been at the forefront for some time. So for countries, particularly those that have a high dependency on tourism, for instance, um, COVID was devastating. Um, government revenues declined, jobs disappeared. Um, and on top of that, you had mounting health care costs. Um, you had mounting unemployment costs to contend with. Um, and so liquidity was a very, very serious challenge, particularly in small island developing states, but frankly, in countries dependent on tourism and those not, uh, those for whom you know workers had to stay home um, for months at a time, um, and the economy was simply struggling. Um, when you think about debt, on top of that, um, debt for many countries, you know, relates to big projects, but for others, it's very simply about you know finding enough resources to meet the sustainable development goals, um, health education, roads, electricity, digital connection. Um, all of that requires a significant investment, both in human resources, but also in capital structures, in buildings and um, in infrastructure. Most countries in the developing world, in the global south, have not had the wherewithal um, you know, to keep up with multiple developments in technology and in connectivity, um, but also to meet basic needs of their populations. And when we add on to that um, climate change, the climate hazards and the impacts of those hazards that have been faced by, again, you know, primarily low-lying coastal uh, and small island developing states, the issues over the past decade have only been mounting. I serve the Prime Minister of Barbados and Mia Mormotli, but I'm from the island of Dominica which faced a series of storms, um, most recently Hurricane Maria, which was a Category 5 storm that pummeled the island in 2017. And the impact was over 200% of GDP overnight, loss and damage um, to the country. And so, you know, keeping up with the day-to-day -day of your development challenges, on top of that, addressing climate change, which can take you back decades, um, you know, really needed to be highlighted. And I really think that's what Bridgetown was about when it was first conceived. Um, it's gotten more specific over the past year or so, year and a half, that it's been in existence. And I'd be happy to delve into a little bit more detail. But I think really understanding the genesis is, uh, is important for your listeners. Yeah, I agree. And I think so much is kind of the context, right? And I think about, you talked about COVID, I think about how indebted countries are, you know, especially low and middle income countries. And it feels like there's no way out. We've already seen some defaults. There are many other countries that are on the edge, on the precipice. And at the very same time, we're all calling for a big energy transition and we want to address poverty. So it seems like the context is so key to why Bridgetown kind of was born. Uh, but I guess I wonder implicit in all of this is a pretty strong critique of the existing international system, right? Because we have a World Bank. We have regional development banks. We have bilateral agencies. I mean, we have a lot of, of architecture that you would think is designed exactly to do to address these problems. But I think implicit in the idea that that the prime minister and, and the whole team of people, including yourself, have, have gotten behind this agenda is to say, no, what we have isn't fit for purpose. I mean, how do you see that the implication for the international system? 
Look, that's an excellent question. I think you're absolutely right. A very central piece of the Bridgetown agenda is about the reform of the global climate and development uh, financing architecture. And of course, that architecture is not just, um, you know, what it is that is provided, but how and to whom and under what conditions. Um, yes, you talked about countries being indebted. But again, the context has been set. Why are countries indebted? Prime Minister speaks often and very, very vocally about the fact that uh, Governments in many countries in the West are able to borrow at a certain interest rate um, and certain tenors. And yet governments in poorer countries often have a disproportionately high cost of capital, um, which affects their ability to afford more. So you're in debt because you have you know, needs that have been piling up for decades. You have populations that are growing. You have, you know, the challenges of, 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 you know, the triple crisis that we've been facing, interest rates going up, you know, uh, COVID and climate change. Um, and then as you look to the future, um, if you don't de-bottleneck that, it simply amplifies. It, it gets worse and worse. So um, if we ask the question, are institutions fit for purpose? I would say yes and no. I would say that the devil is in the detail. So it's not that money is not available. It's what type of money and at what cost. And when I say what type of money, you know, um, there, there is concessional lending, um, and then there's more concessional lending, and then there's grant money, and then there's commercial capital, right? And that's a spectrum. You have free money, which everyone would take if it were offered to them, and you have very expensive money, which many countries, frankly, don't have uh, any other option but to take. And somewhere in between, there are different types of money. I think that's really what we're saying is that we need to take a much more nuanced approach. When we're investing in climate resilience, and remember, we're talking for countries, speaking for those countries that for the most part have had very little to do with climate change. Again, take Dominica, a country of about 65,000 people, um, you know, that has had very little to do uh, with global warming and yet suffered, you know, storm after storm. And frankly, the prospects are not great for the future. So when um, we think about these countries that are building resilient infrastructure, they're trying to underground their power lines. They're trying to deal with water losses from infrastructure that was built during the colonial era. And that, you know, for climate adaptation, we need to deal with uh, mounting droughts, risk of droughts and, and changing uh, rainfall patterns. That's all incredibly expensive, right? Um, how do we finance that? If we're financing that at effectively commercial terms, it's unaffordable. Billions and billions of dollars of, of, of capital are required. And so there are projects where, you know, you could say, look, these are frankly commercially viable. If you look at solar energy, if you look at, at wind, technology costs have come down to a level where in most countries, you know, if you have a decent economy of scale, they're incredibly cost competitive. In smaller countries, maybe not as cost competitive, but we can look at viability gap financing. If you look at projects like, you know, retrofitting homes, with hurricane straps or rebuilding roofs in, you know, very vulnerable slum areas so that those populations are protected during, uh, during a, a, a weather event, uh, underground in cables. There isn't really a return, immediate financial return on investment. There may be an economic return. It may be beneficial to the country. But if you don't really have a revenue stream that can, um, you know, cover the cost of capital, you have to pay for it out of your government coffers. And there's only so far and so deep those coffers can go. So I think the international financing architecture has to really recognize um, that, you know, one, there are investments that are commercially viable. Two, there are investments that are not commercially viable, but have a huge economic benefit. And particularly when we talk about disaster risk reduction, I think it's been pretty wide, you know, widely recognized that, you know, for every dollar invested 
and disaster prevention, you save a dollar in resources that would be required for recovery. Um, and yet we're required, you know, effectively to borrow money to recover um, rather than be allocated funding at much lower cost to prevent the disasters when it would not only serve the country as well, but also serve our financing partners. Is there a trade-off here that low-income countries are right to be worried about? Because, you know, there's been some there's been some discussion that some of the, the poorest countries in the world say, well, this whole agenda might end up shifting funding to middle-income countries to do the kinds of projects that there's a lot of private sector interest in, like, you know, solar farms. And so you end up with countries, small ones like Barbados, but that are middle-income, or large ones like Indonesia, and you say, well, what about the very poorest countries that are really not emitting a lot, that don't have any real fiscal space and don't have the capability to raise money in the international markets? And now, is there going to be a lot less concessional capital for them? I'm sure you've heard this thread, at least, of argumentation. What, what do you say about it? How do you feel about that? I have heard it many times. And, and for that, I, uh, I think it's about time that I got a T-shirt. Um, I had this discussion, actually, with some colleagues at the World Bank. And, and that T-shirt would read, we need more, we need cheaper, and we need longer term. So it's not just about, you know, um, reallocating the resources that are currently available. It's about growing the pie. And there is simply no way around that. The reality is that the financing that has been committed um, to address the crises that we're facing globally is simply not enough. Um, we need to mobilize private capital. And we need to crowd that in. And there's very many ways of doing that, right? There are guarantees that can be placed. There is, you know, um, early stage project development support that can be used to crowd in capital. There's de-risking instruments. That's all well known. So that's one way you can grow the pie. But unfortunately, there isn't much, a way, much of a way around saying that we're simply going to need to find creative ways of getting the development finance institutions to lend more. So this is not about... Um, creating some sort of chasm between, you know, lower income and, you know, middle to high income countries from small island states versus, you know, countries at risk of desertification, you know, from countries in Africa versus countries in the Pacific. No, let's not get into that conversation. The reality is that we simply need more. Climate Plus is supported by the World Bank. Back in October, World Bank President Ajay Banga called for a new vision for ending poverty on a livable planet with a focus on climate action. We cannot endure another period of emission-heavy growth. We must find a way to finance a different world where our climate is protected, where pandemics are manageable, if not preventable, where food is abundant and fragility and poverty are defeated. We do not suffer from a shortage of solutions. We're just paralyzed by a persistent lack of courage to pursue them. The good news is that we have solutions like these within reach and resources at our disposal to scale them. To learn more about efforts to end poverty on a livable planet, search for the World Bank Group at COP28 or click the link in the show notes. And so what about the places where at least it seems like we're making progress on this agenda. And I'm thinking in particular about the World Bank as a new leader. It has this evolution roadmap. Um, you know, a lot of the changes that are envisioned at the bank are exactly the kinds of things you're talking about at the Bridgetown Initiative. Do you feel like 
when you look at that reform agenda, it is aligned? Is it moving at the pace it needs to move at? What would you say about reform at the World Bank and the other MDBs? Look, I think that's an excellent question. And and I look at this as an opportunity to strengthen and deepen and broaden partnerships. The World Bank has really responded quickly. They've come up with the evolution roadmap within a very short space of time. Um, You know, uh, the Prime Minister spoke about the need for change and the World Bank responded. I think it's coming up on about a year since uh, the evolution roadmap first came out. So I think that um, not only is the intention there, but the action is coming along. But the devil is in the detail. And the reality is that we have many, many details to work out. I think, um, you know, I, I don't really want to speak for the Prime Minister, but I think that many people were very happy to see um, that the World Bank's um, president, uh, Ajay Banga, came out um, at the Paris summit in June and spoke about um, the bank backing natural disaster clauses, which is exceptional. Um, I think, again, the question then is for you know, for which countries, uh, under which conditions, um, is it retroactive? Is it principle or principle and interest? Is it forward-looking or historical and forward-looking loans? And is there a cost associated for, you know, for, for subscribing to, to the natural disaster clause uh, option? Um, and if there is a cost, which is simply to cover transactions um, that the bank needs to pay for, so the bank isn't making money on that, fully understandable, but are there ways to get the donors to cover those costs so it doesn't become yet another impediment uh, to government signing up. So I think the intention is there, the action is there, but we really need to make sure that we're getting into the details of the things that really do, um, you know, create frustration, um, you know, in, in the bank's clients about it doing enough, because I really do think that we both, um, you know, within the Bridgetown Initiative team and the MDB space are, are really trying to do the right thing. It's about making sure that we converge at the right point so that it's not platitudes. It's not staying at the one line, you know, uh, Financial Times headline level. It's really about how does this instrument benefit uh, the clients that we're trying to serve and how do we provide sufficient feedback so that the World Bank and other MDBs are doing what they need to do and what they actually do ultimately want to do in the end. You're so right to talk about the the details really matter, the execution, the tools. And you know this well because you've worked at the World Bank. Uh, you were inside the IFC. You've seen how this institution works from the inside. You know, one of the things I hear a lot of people talk about is that we need a cultural shift at the World Bank and institutions like it. Would you agree with that? Is this like, you know, because part of this obviously is, you know, having the right tools and the right mechanisms, the right business model, but how much of of it is the people who actually work at the World Bank, are they kind of ready for it? Do they have the mindset shift that you've got? Do you, do you see that as a, as a challenge or do you think they're coming along? What, what's your take on it as someone who knows the institution? Oh, you're throwing the easy questions at me today. Look, um, I do come from the World Bank Group. I was a young professional. Uh, I joined the bank, um, you know, a couple of decades ago, almost, I think. Um, And uh, yeah, time is flying. And I can tell you that every single person in my cohort and pretty much every single person I've ever worked with, be it at IFC, the World Bank or at MIGA, um, is there for the right reasons. So um, if we talk about the mindset shift, it's not a mindset shift in terms of am I here for impact? I think it's more an institutional institutional shift. And you see this um, in the MTBs as much as you see it in governments, as much as you see it in the private sector. The reality is that uh, whenever you have a large number of people that are working towards a sing- even a single direction, you're going to put into place procedures, policies, um, you know, uh, mechanisms, um, 
tools, systems that are intended to help them get there. Sometimes those well-intentioned structures um, can get in the way. You do have a good reason to have them there, right? It's about due diligence. It's about making sure you have the right approvals. You have the right level of oversight. You're doing well with the money that has been vested in you. But sometimes, um, you know, things get a little bit complex. So I wouldn't say that it's about culture um, at an individual level. I would say that it is about the structures that have been created um, that may have, you know, in, in some instances, they may have, you know, the desired impact. And in other instances, they may simply slow things down. I'll give you a concrete example. And this is not specific to the bank. So I, I definitely don't want to get, um, uh, you know, uh, told that this doesn't work in the bank. But if you look at development um, more broadly, I spent many years um, in the energy access space, um, looking at, you know, uh, deep rural areas, urban um, informal settlements and what it would take uh, to make. Uh, you know, to make those populations, um, you know, accessible to the power grid, be it off grid or or grid connected um, or centrally connected. And if you think about a grid extension project, you know, you are stringing power lines. If you want to make them resilient, ideally, you would put them underground, you know, depending on the distance um, from the load center to to the power plant um, or the transmission system. But If those populations also need water, if they also need road upgrades, you would ideally do all of that at the same time. If um, you have a structure which separates the water team from the power team from the roads team, and you're not necessarily incentivized to book a loan of $500 million, for example, to do all three things at once, because that would end up being a third, a third, a third by sector, but you are incentivized to book $500 million for a single sector, then you're not necessarily going to look at the solution from the point of view or the perspective of the end user. I need water, I need power, I need roads. You're potentially going to look at it from the point of view of the supply side, which is I need to book a $500 million deal. So let's do the roads or the power lines or the water infrastructure. So um, I think this is generally an issue of, you know, are we incentivized as an institution to understand fully what the challenges are that our, our clients are facing? And to separate those challenges from what it is that we as individuals or a department or a vice presidency is incentivized to do because we have targets. Um, and, and that, I think, can be resolved. You can find ways around that. You can encourage not just cross-departmental collaboration, but you can encourage, um, I would say, targets to be set and that are not specific to a sector. When you get too sector specific, I think you find that people don't collaborate as much as they would if they were trying to solve the problem, again, from the point of view of the person, uh, you know, living 200 kilometers from from the nearest town center. I think you put that so beautifully, because I've heard lots of people talk about this, but, you know, your example really brings to light, it doesn't matter if you have a PhD in economics, if you're brilliant and you've, you know, worked on, on, on many projects on many continents, at the end of the day, we're all people and we respond to incentives, including the kind of institutional incentives that exist inside really big bureaucracies like the World Bank Group. And it's such a great point. And I think it, you know, you're, you're focusing here on sectors in your example, but I think it also cuts across the, the tools within the World Bank Group, right? Thinking about MEGA and the importance of using guarantees, especially as we want to bring in more private sector funding or thinking of the IFC and you know, wanting to integrate a private sector-led approach to a lot of the kinds of initiatives we're talking about. And right now, a lot of these things kind of live independently and separately. And um, so I think your point is great. I think about how Ajay Banga has said, look, we're going to go from a corporate scorecard with 153 indicators, I think, down to 20. And it kind of gets to your point of like, we got to find the cross-cutting themes here and get out of 
the practice of just thinking in all these little silos. Because at the end of the day, that community, you're connecting to the grid. If you really want that community to develop, you have to think of it in a holistic way and to give them all the tools that they need. Absolutely. And if I could just jump in quickly, um, Raj, you know, you talk about the institution having, um, you know, a pretty excellent uh, toolkit. I fully agree. I think we have, I would say, you know, within the bank group, probably 90% of what's necessary, but the remaining 10%, which I think is a combination of instruments as well as risk tolerance, um, I think could definitely be improved on. Um, But I would say ultimately, um, it's, it's really about deliberately going out there and looking for opportunities to create synergy and create these virtuous circles, as opposed to doing it by accident or by chance or just based on relationships. And there are excellent relationships between colleagues at the bank and IFC, but but that doesn't necessarily you know, create the volume that you want. And as we think about, again, bringing it back to Bridgetown, what is needed. We need to do things differently. We need to do things in small places where it's hard to find that 100, 200, 300, 400 million dollar loan. So we're going to have to get a lot more comfortable. That means we have to start aggregating. That means we have to become much more efficient. You know, we need these institutions um, to be able to collaborate with domestic capital markets. Um, and, and you know, that's not going to happen without, uh, I would say, a, a lot of push. Um, and risk tolerance is critical as well. Um, again, you know, from my perspective, having spent time within the institutions, my sense is that um, just the way the institutions are structured, you are incentivized again to do larger transactions. Um, you're incentivized to do transactions where the return is fairly certain and risk is fairly low. But who sets who sets those parameters? That's not people don't wake up one day and say, I don't want to take risk. That becomes, you know, you know, either comes down from the board or has become a part of the culture of the institution. And sometimes you don't even know why you're risk averse. So I think challenging, not just do we need more instruments, you know, do we need to set the scorecard in such a way, but also are we taking the right amount of risk? And I will say that if the institutions that we on the Bridgetown Initiative side um, are, see as a, as a critical counterparts are not taking risk, then it's going to be a long, hard slog to get to where we need to go. And and frankly, we don't have time. Are you interested in the intersection of business and social impact? Do you want to know how corporate sustainability, ESG, impact investing, and more can contribute to development finance? My name is Adva Saldinger. I'm a senior reporter at DevEx, and I've been reporting on these issues for nearly a decade. I'm the author of DevEx Invested, our free weekly newsletter dedicated to development finance. Every Tuesday, we explore how companies, investors, and market mechanisms are reshaping the world of development finance. Visit devex.com newsletters and join us on Tuesdays. The way I like to think about it is that the bank has to go from being a lending institution that measures success in like, how many loans have we done or how big are the loans to more of a deal-making institution that's thinking about an entire geography or an entire industry and saying, how do we put together all the pieces to help a country or a region, let's say, develop an electric car industry? You know, how do do we think in those terms, which is going to require lots of private sector, much more private sector than official you know, finance, but it's also requires someone to coordinate this or, and orchestrate, which, which leads me to, you know, another thing I wanted to ask you about, which is the JETPs, the Just Energy Transition Partnerships. And because those in some ways, you know, they're emblematic of what you just described for the MDBs, which is 
you know, they are bringing together all the tools and trying to help countries that, you know, are, are really looking at a long runway of reliance on coal power to be able to make a transition more quickly. Uh, but it has not been easy, to say the least. I mean, there's progress in the sense that there's more and more of the jet peas coming. Uh, a number of countries are signed up. But boy, it's been tough. And I guess I wonder, how do you see the jet peas are going and why do you think it's been so tough? Yeah, I, I think that there is some room for improvement on the jet peas, right? Uh, why has it been tough? I, I think it, it, it depends on the country that you're looking at. And I certainly don't want to single any country out. But I um, I feel quite strongly that, you know, governments um, have, again, you know, the desire to provide for their populations, but it's often a real juggle and sometimes a real struggle, um, particularly if you're looking at the short term. When we take a marathon perspective, I think it's very easy to say, listen, we're all on the right track. The question is, can we demonstrate those results over a year or two years or three years? Um, and the reality is that, um, you know, the governments are under pressure to do things faster um, and in, in many cases have multiple interests that they're that they're struggling with. Um, you know, I I was going to jump in on, on something that you said earlier, right, which was about... Um, crowding in the private sector. The reality is that, you know, development partners need, and, and I think it's it's got to become a not just a reality, but a realization, need to come along um, to support investment plans that are country-led and are holistic. If you take the jet peas, um, I think, you know, that deals with climate change mitigation, that deals with the emission side. But the reality is that governments are trying to balance, you know, mitigation and adaptation um, together, not always straightforward, firstly. Secondly, as I mentioned earlier, short term and long term, also not always easy to reconcile. Um, But I think the true country ownership may be uh taken for granted right um i feel that often we say that uh you know we want countries to own things but the reality is that the driving is actually being done from the outside um one of the things that i've been working on um in parallel to 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 supporting on the bridgetown initiative um is developing a prosperity and resilience uh, investment plan for Barbados, which lays out everything that the government um, is seeking to achieve over the next 10 or so years. And, and let's see if we're able to complete it, um, you know, in the next few weeks. But the reality is that that is a truly, truly country led, not just country owned, because I think there's a, a bit of a label, you know, is this country owned? It's a country driven process. No one asked Barbados to do that, right? And um, I think that if we take, you know, the jet peas, uh, take a little bit of, of a step back from your question, if we take the jet peas in the context of what it is that governments are having to um, contend with, uh, we might find that you know the challenge lies in um, how well anchored they are in in what the country is is um, is truly desirous of achieving. Yeah, you're so right. I mean, because on the one hand, these are countries that are heavily reliant on coal production for their electricity, but they don't have enough electricity for their people as it absolutely. is. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. So. So it's a tough sell to say, you know, turn off those coal plants or at least wind them down. You know, we'll be there to help you with renewable energy. I mean, it sounds nice, but you can imagine how political leaders find this to be a real struggle. And especially when you think of all the workers involved in the coal industry, right? And the domestic uh, business interests. And, you know, this is a tall order. So, you know, it's ambitious and you don't expect something this ambitious to just go swimmingly from day one. But um, it's also a little bit discouraging that it hasn't moved faster, um, given how critical this is. I think it's still a third of the world's electricity comes from coal. And there's just, you know, there's no way we hit the targets if we keep burning all this coal. 
that's that's <laughs> I, I don't think there's any way around that, right? We need to we need to transition, but how we transition and the extent to which that transition is anchored in a holistic approach for the country, and again, not just for a sector. This is not just about the energy sector. I know that we're looking at just transition, but switching jobs from one sector to the other takes time. You need to be able to create in parallel um, entire industries. You need to look at where population centers are currently. And I think, again, that just takes me back to this is a long, this is a long, it's a long race, right? Um, so when we say that they haven't been successful, um, I would say successful, you know, in what context? Um Potentially at the short term, no, they're not delivering quick results. Um, at the long term, if they're anchored within a journey that governments need to make sure that they are delivering on, maybe, you know, the first steps are the hardest and uh, and progress comes after that. But I do think that the real issue is, again, the bifurcation, energy, water, you know, roads. Similarly, you know, we're looking at emissions versus emissions in a country that has tens, hundreds of millions of people to feed, um, it has jobs that need to be created. It has sectors that need to be repurposed. That does not happen overnight. Does that mean that it shouldn't happen? Absolutely not. Does that mean I'm not for energy transitions? I'm absolutely for them. But I think we need to be a lot more thoughtful about how complex it is from the government's perspective. And it's in that context that development partners need to crowd in. And as you mentioned earlier, look for the solution and broker the deal as opposed to look for the transaction, um, you know, that will take a single box. I love the nuance you're bringing to this conversation. So I've got to ask you about loss and damage too, because I also, similar to, to Jet P, I kind of wonder about this, you know, in a way it makes perfect sense that the countries that were not responsible for climate change should get some kind of compensation and be able to manage the losses and the damage they're suffering as a result of the emissions of rich countries. But on the other hand, this is an era in which we're trying to raise precious resources and we're falling way short of what's needed. Is, this, is loss and damage potentially kind of a distraction from what you're trying to do with the Bridgetown Initiative? You know, like taking political energy away from the solutions focus that you've got? No, absolutely not. Loss and damage is one of the pieces in Bridgetown. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not an either or. I think, again, you know, I tend to look at life on a spectrum. If we think about, um, you know, uh, all the stuff that has to be done to ensure that we're bringing emissions down, you know, no way around it. it has to happen. If we're thinking about disaster risk reduction and everything I mentioned earlier, you know, every dollar invested saves four dollars on the back end. You know, do we not make those investments? No, we have to make those investments while we're also reducing emissions. Does that mean that we cannot have a loss and damage fund? Absolutely need to have a loss and damage fund because the reality is that emissions are not coming down fast enough. There's not enough money being poured in to disaster risk reduction, prevention and resilience building. As a result, we will have losses. We will have damages, and those are only going to get bigger. Look at Pakistan. 30 million people affected by that flood. Um, you know, that's, that's crazy. Will there ever be enough commitment to the size, the volume, and nature of resources required to address 30 million people affected in a single country, let alone the hundreds of millions of people, um, you know, that are already being affected in both acute as well as kind of slow onset chronic ways? No. Um, and so um, I would say, you know, unequivocally, um, loss and damage is a, a, 
a key piece of the Bridgetown agenda, because again, you know, we're not looking at this as an either or. So we're just, I don't know, days away from Dubai. What what are you kind of looking to as you look ahead to this this cop? Like, how do you how do you think this cop will be remembered? What are the things you're sort of pushing to see happen at this cop in particular, just coming up? Yeah, from my side, I think this is a, a COP where we can really talk about what it will take to catalyze private capital. That's um, a key piece that I'm personally looking um, forward to seeing move. It doesn't come at the cost or the expense of anything else, but I think that this is a really important one, um, in part perhaps because of you know um, where the COP presidency comes from um, and also where it's being held. I think there's an opportunity to put a slightly different spin on it, uh, but I don't think that we should be looking at private capital, um, you know, catalytic capital mobilization um, as being the be-all and end-all. I think this takes us back to the beginning of the conversation, which is that governments need to meet very basic needs. I don't feel that we should be, you know, um, pitting climate challenges against um, basic uh, human dignity, for lack of a better word, right? Human dignity and progress preconditions, um, which are encapsulated in the SDGs. Um, And so, you know, as much as we can push for the private capital mobilization and commitments around that, both from governments in terms of what it is that they need, and what their investment plans are going to look like, and and what type of, um, you know, what type of um, of, um, uh, of sort of catalytic tools they require and the private sector. Let's not forget, there are many, many opportunities to bring the private sector and there's a lot of money that's looking for a home. I think it's about making sure that there's a, that there's a meeting in the middle. Um, but I don't think that that should be uh, you know, I don't think we should be patting ourselves on the back if we're able to achieve progress on private capital, because that that means that we've left, um, you know, the really key bits related to, to, to the development agenda off the hook. I think that needs to be done in parallel and with a mounting uh, call for, you know, what I mentioned earlier, we need more, we need cheaper, and we need longer term capital uh, to make any of this uh, equation balance. So personally, I think, um, you know, seeing some real commitments um, on private financing, but seeing way more commitment to concessional financing, which is absolutely critical for laying the foundation for resilience. So maybe just as we wrap up here, take us kind of behind the scenes of your life, if you would. You know, I remember when the Bridgetown meeting was being organized and hearing from friends saying, yeah, I'm going to go to Barbados for this meeting and thinking, interesting, like, I wonder what is going to come of this. And boy, a lot has come of it. I mean, you have been on a wild ride for what is it, the last year and a half or something. Um, I guess I'd love to understand a little bit more from this enormous policy advocacy success story that I think is the Bridgetown Initiative, right? This, the idea that the prime minister of a country of 280,000 people is helping to lead a global agenda on climate and development. Uh, it's sort of an unlikely story and it seems to be happening. So, I mean, take us a little bit behind the scenes of what it's been like for you. What, what is kind of a day in the life of Pep? You know, what do you do? What do you, what are the conversations you're having and how do you actually make all of this activity drive towards some real action? Wow. Um, great question. Uh, I um, am one of the newbies to the team. I joined in June this year, so I've been around for coming up on six months. Um, clearly, Prime Minister uh, Motley and other key people in the team, you know, Avinash Prasad and, and many others within government, um, have <laughs> have been the ones on the wild ride, right? They're traveling incessantly, meeting with, you know, everyone from, you know, 
heads of the MDBs to, you know, sovereigns to, you know, CEOs of companies. But there's a huge push also from civil society. There's been a tremendous, tremendous, um, I would say support, but but more of of, of movement building um, that's come from the outside. So I think, you know, whatever the ride has been, it hasn't been a lonely one. I think people have been piling on, uh, which is fantastic. Um, a day in my life, well, I, um, I have two small kids, um, so I juggle them. Uh, I'm trying to uh, travel as little as possible uh, and at the same time, you know, do the most one can um, at an opportunity, uh, a moment in time where we have just incredible, incredible, um, I would say, drive both internally and externally, as well as an imperative to get this right. Um, it's not just Bridgetown, you know, um, there's leadership from the African continent, as we saw with the Africa Climate Summit, I think with Brazil taking on the G20 in the next couple of months. Again, you know, there's this global south, um, tremendous coalition building, which is emphasized and, and I would say reinforced by um, many, many partners from the global north, right? So a day in my life looks like, um, you know, trying to reach out to, to people um, in, in many parts of the world, you know, strengthening coalitions with Africa, strengthening coalitions, um, you know, within the global south more broadly, but also extending a hand, um, you know, to the MDBs. Uh, I've said, you know, many times during this conversation that I come from the World Bank Group. I'm actually um, on secondment to Prime Minister um, uh, Prime Minister Motley's office um, to support her for two years. But that also provides an opportunity to reach out and kind of kick things across the line. So, you know, we talked about those headlines of what Bridgetown is trying to achieve and all the details of things that need to be unpacked and solidified under that. Uh, a lot of my day uh, involves reaching out, um, you know, to colleagues within the World Bank group um, to figure out, you know, how do we make this real um, to reaching out to, to folks in the private sector? You know, how do we make this real? And, and that's that's where I spend most of my time. Uh, I'm also spending a good amount of time, at least half at the moment, um, on working, uh, working on Barbados's investment plan, which has been a tremendous opportunity to get to know colleagues from across government, every single sector, understand um, not just the challenges they're facing, but their vision. Uh, for the next 10 years and trying to put some numbers to that. And that ties very neatly into Bridgetown. Where do we need concessional money? Where do we need grant money? Where is there a commercial opportunity, even in a country as small as Barbados? Um, and there are many other smaller countries that have tremendous, uh, you know, tremendous potential. So I would say it's a combination of the forest and the trees, the forest being Bridgetown, the trees being the details of Barbados. Um, again, the forest, which is the headlines of the Bridgetown initiative, the trees being kicking things across the finish line. Um, and uh, and that's pretty much it. Well, this has got to be one of the most important and fascinating stories in the world. And you're right at the center of it. So it has been such a pleasure to to get to talk to you, uh, Pepukai Bardui, who is the director of the Bridgetown Initiative Unit of the Barbados government. I will see you in Dubai. A pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm a, a small speck in a large ocean, but we're really excited uh, to be doing what we're doing. And thank you so much for the, um, for the space to share this. Thanks for listening to Climate Plus. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it. And you can also leave us a rating or a review. We'll be publishing episodes twice a week in the lead up to, during, and after COP28. So make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform. If you want to share some feedback on this episode or have questions you'd like answered, we'd love to hear from you. Drop me a message on X, formerly Twitter, at alterigo, or send an email to podcast at devx.com. 
Climate Plus is a podcast from DevX. Raj Kumar was the interviewer for today's episode. It was produced and edited by Naomi Mihara. The series editor is Catherine Cheney. It's hosted by me, Michael Igo. Thank you.